Amen. Hey, I'm glad you guys are back with us this morning as we continue our study through the book of 1 Thessalonians. This morning we are in chapter 3, verses 11 through 13. Uh, you can find a Bible in the back of the pew in front of you if you don't have one. If you don't have one uh, with you, we'd love for that to be a gift from us to you. If you're not familiar with how to use the Bible, you can find in the front of that Bible a table of contents. It's going to let you know how to locate the book of 1 Thessalonians. And then as we make our way through, the large numbers are chapters, and the small numbers are verses. And as I said this morning, we're in chapter 3, verses 11 through 13. Hey, let me read this for us, and then we'll spend some time working through this passage. Paul writes and says, Now may our God and Father himself and our Lord Jesus Christ direct our way to you. And may the Lord make you increase and abound in love for one another and for all, as we do for you, so that he may establish your hearts blameless in holiness before our God and Father at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ with all his saints. Let me pray for us. Father, we thank you this morning that we have an opportunity to open your word, uh, to do so in the relative safety of this room. And we recognize that even as we have the ability to do that, that the world over men and women are gathering to study your word, have studied your word already today, uh, with no hope of safety, with no sense of security. Uh, but they've gathered because they love you. And because they love you, they want to learn more about you and how they might live more faithfully unto you, glorifying you in all that they do. So God, today we pray for the church endangered. We pray for the church in harm's way. We pray for the missionaries that you have working in those places, for the men and women who just faithfully come to learn more about you and about your son. God, that they would be encouraged, that they would be supported in some sense through our intercession this morning, our prayer for them, our hearts coming before your throne for their good. God, we pray for the other churches in our community this morning, uh, that as there are churches with empty pulpits that are calling in, we pray specifically for Crosspoint this morning as they're pastor is preparing to move from Maryland to Greenville for his family of seven. God, we pray for them as they make that transition. God, we want to see the churches in this community be strong, be thriving, be pushing back darkness, and we want to do that together because we think that's how we can uh, most readily glorify you. God, I pray that you would give us hearts that long for that, that lean into that, and look for opportunities to explore uh, greater ways that we can do that. Father, this morning we ask that you would be with those of us who came into this place with hearts burdened. Uh, we have been saddled with difficulty. We are afraid. We're anxious. We're angry. We're disappointed, depressed, distracted, despondent. God, in whatever ways we find ourselves coming into this place, we are here to meet with you. So I pray that your Holy Spirit would move freely in this place of worship, that you would explore our hearts that our hearts would be open to you, that our lives would be yielded before you. And God, let us pray that we would give back uh, to you this time, that you might be glorified and honored, you might be worshipped in our hearts' posture before you, and that our minds might be ready to receive a word from you. Take us, mold us into something that would glorify you. I pray you bless us in this time, in Christ's name, amen, amen. So there are really kind of two ways that I'm trying to decide how to approach this. And even now as I'm talking, I'm stalling because I'm trying to figure out which one to go with. Uh, Sin of Boshua, I think I'm going to go with this one. 
Cinda Bochard, a number of years ago, was talking to us, and, and if, if you know her, and I feel comfortable talking about her because they're not here today, <laughs> not because they skip church frequently, but because they're in another state, uh, not of mine, but reality. And so, uh, we're, we're t- I think that made sense, maybe. They're in Pennsylvania. Okay, I don't know. Okay. Anyway, so we're talking to her about raising kids, and they raised uh, eight great kids, and uh, she just had this really simple phrase. She said, only expect what you plan to inspect, which is just really helpful, right? And so if you say, go clean your room, but you have no reasonable expectation that you're going to go make sure their room is cleaned, you're inviting them to engage in disobedience. So only expect what you plan to inspect. And so that, that, that thought occurs to me that what Paul really gives us here is the inspection that's coming and the expectation for how we should be on the basis that, that there is this inspection coming. So as we sit here, as you live your life, we recognize that what God is telling us is that his son Jesus is coming back and when he comes back, there's something in particular he's looking for. There's something particular that's meant to be true of us and how we live. So in some sense, the expectation of God is going to be met with the inspection of the Son. And on the basis of this, it behooves us, it is necessary for us, it is good for us to take seriously this word for what then the church needs to look like. What then the church needs to look like? And simply, we could say that the church needs to be an oasis of love. The church needs to be an oasis of love. Dr. Sandin, you asked me for a title, if that works for you. The Oasis of Love. The more I say it, the more I hate it, but you can use it. (laughs) So let's look at how Paul opens this. This could be a train wreck. We got titles, we got states of mind. Anyway, look at how he opens this. Verse 11, he says, Now may our God and Father himself and our Lord Jesus direct our way to you. So what Paul is writing and telling them there, it's it's asking us to remember back in chapter 2 and verse 18. He said, We long to come and see you, but Satan hindered us. He blocked the way. We had no ability to come and see you. Chapter 3 and verse 5, we found that Timothy has come back from Thessalonica. He's linked up with Paul in Corinth, and he's filled him in on all the various things that are going on. But still, Paul recognizes that it's not been enough for him simply to observe the obstacle. It's not been enough for him simply to hear from second hand how they're doing uh, from Timothy. He wants to go there himself. And so he, he gives us a little bit of theology first. What he does first is he equates God the Father and Jesus the Son. Do you see what he does there? He's praying to them as they are equal in majesty, equal in glory. That's not God the Father and then Jesus the Son. He's praying to both of them together. He says, we pray to God the Father himself and our Lord Jesus Christ to do something really particular. He says, to to direct our way to you. It's still in the Apostle Paul's heart because of his love for these Thessalonians that he gets to come see them himself. And he recognizes in this that there's no amount of hard work that he can invest. There's no amount of of, of machination he can engage in that's going to make this thing happen. He needs God to do the work to let him be able to go and see these Thessalonians. There's there's a whole lot we can unpack, and we're going to unpack some of this in our small groups this week about what that looks like in terms of things you may feel God is calling you to and things that you should possibly engage in 
in order to live out the calling God has set before you, even when obstacles, roadblocks, and difficulties find their way into our path. Well, let's spend the majority of our time this morning looking at Paul's prayer for them. So his prayer for himself is that he would come to them. His prayer for them, look at what he says, that you may increase and abound in love for one another and for all as we do for you. So first we see, I think the best way to look at this is that Paul sets himself, Sylvanus, and Timothy up as a template for how to engage. Do you see what he says there? As we do for you. So they're able to look at their how they interacted, how they engaged with one another and say, I remember when Paul, Timothy, and Sylvanus were here. Man, they loved us. They cared for us. They lived their lives before us in a way that was accessible, in a, lay, in a way that was vibrant and rich. And so we have this template. We have this uh, path laid out before us. We have someone that we see do this well. And in some ways, this is really helpful for us. As you're sitting here today, likely you've had an experience of, of people who've been a disappointment to you, and hopefully you've had an experience of people that have loved you really well. People that if you think about them, you can think about a neighbor, you can think about a deacon, you can think about a woman at a church you've been at before. You can think about someone who has loved you really well. And so when you think about what it looks like to love people well, you, rem you remember this person and how they loved you well. So it's not something ethereal, it's not something out there, it's something concrete. You know how to do that. And that's what Paul's giving them in the idea that as we do for you. Now let's look at this biblically under the idea of kind of how we unpack this. There are two places, both books uh, are written by the Apostle John. One is from the Gospel of John and one is from 1 John if you want to make your way there. Or just write it down, you can go there later. John 13, 35, Jesus says simply, by this... So through this action, through this directive, in this, in this manner of engagement, people will know that you are my, my disciples if you have love for one another. So in essence, how do people know that we identify with Jesus? If we love one another. And so you could say that the opposite of that is also true. If we don't have a love for one another, then there's no clear indication that anybody should be able to look at us and say that they're the followers of Jesus. Now, some churches, maybe this church for you, have been an example of this not being lived out fully. Now, this does not negate the teaching of Jesus. What this does is drive back a greater need to work, to explore, and to live out his words. Now, look at this hard word that John gives us in 1 John chapter 3, verses 20 and 21. He says, if anyone says, I love God. Raise your hand if you're here in this place and you love the Lord. Not nearly enough hands go up. Sarah and Kenny will talk later. Like if you love the Lord, and, and that's why you're here, that's why you've given this unfortunate time on a Sunday morning to gather together. He says, if anyone loves the Lord and hates his brother, so in essence he's a murderer in his heart, he is a liar, for he who does not love his brother whom he has seen cannot love God whom he has not seen. And this commandment we have from him, whoever loves God must also love his brother. So we come into this with this understanding that it is a requirement for us to love one another. Beyond that, it is a requirement for us to love people, he says, everywhere. And so we recognize in this, we read in this, we have to love both saved people and lost people. Now, I don't know about you, but many times from my experience, it's easier to love a lost person. Because I have no reasonable expectation that they will be a kind, loving, caring, 
delightful person. And, and I'm not saying that they can't be. I'm just saying I have no reasonable expectation to think that they will be that way. And so when they're not, it doesn't bother me. But when I find myself in the midst of trying to love a Christian and they are not loving in return, they are not kind in return, they are not gracious in return, it's, it's a difficult concept to wrap my mind around. And so let's just, let's just translate, let's understand love as seeking to do good to another. So you can write that down. Love is seeking to do good to another. So let's think about it first in the idea of lost people and then moved into the category of what it is to to love a a saved person. I'm going to quote several times from a book called Bold Love written by Dan Allender and Tremper Longman. I'm a huge Dan Allender fan. He's a counselor up in Seattle. My staff is not such a huge Dan Allender fan because he he takes uh, simple concepts and makes them into pages of text, which I've asked them to read with me. Uh, but Bold Love is the name of, name of the book if you want to follow up on some of this stuff. But thinking of lost people, this is what Allender says. He says that when we share the gospel with a stranger or a friend, we are not just involved in a quiet clash of ideas or ideals with another rational human being. We are sharing the news of sin and redemption with someone who is on Satan's side, whether that person is conscious of it or not. Now you hear that and you say, well, that's, that's pretty alarming. I'm not sure I agree with that. I'm not sure that I, ugh, I'm not sure how comfortable I feel with that. Look, look at Ephesians really quickly. Let's see how the Apostle Paul would uh, speak to, would answer uh, to that difficulty. Because I feel you. I think that is a really difficult thing to understand. Ephesians 2. Ephesians 2, he says, speaking to Christians, speaking to the church at Ephesus, speaking to you, speaking to me, he says, and you were, everybody say dead, and you were dead in the trespasses and the sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience. This is what he says. If you have friends, if you have family, if you're sitting here today and you don't follow Jesus, he's not your savior, you've not entrusted yourself to him, you've not yielded over the the power and the purpose of your life to him, Apostle Paul, and we would agree, says that whether you consciously admit it or not, you are in league cooperating with Satan. And so the most loving thing a follower of Jesus Christ can do for you is to speak to you in regards to sin and redemption. We do not want you to stay ensnared and enslaved to sin and death. We don't want you to stay in league with Satan. We want you to join with us moving from death to life. And this is the gracious invitation of the gospel that God has made a way through the death of his son, whereby you might lead obedience to Satan and yield over and move to obedience to Jesus. And this is God's gracious invitation. And the only way we can legitimately be seen as people who love lost people is if we engage in that presentation. It's if we engage in this and and, and move somehow towards this. But somehow we feel that if we engage in kindness, if we engage in loving them enough and not bringing this up, that somehow we can make them a better, kinder 
more lucid and palatable version of themselves. In essence, what you're doing is you're remaking their moral nature into being something that's going to help you sleep at night. But you've not transformed their spiritual nature, and their greatest need is to experience the love of God through you and proclaiming the gospel and inviting them to know Jesus. This is what it is, simply put, to love a lost person. So let's, let's look at saved people. Allender says that, that God, and I think this is the truth that, that, that finds itself un, unraveling in our hearts. It says God is for us far more at times than we would prefer. God is for you far more at sometimes than you would prefer. He is committed to removing all vestiges of sin, every semblance of sin from your life, from our soul, when we wish he'd be satisfied with a clean new outfit. Isn't that true? Don't we sometimes wish God would be like, hey, Joel, you've got this issue. Justin, you've got this issue. Uh, Jonathan, you've got this issue. Jimmy, you've got this issue. But it's not such a big deal. Let's just take you over and, and, uh, to Bell's to, and, and, and Belk, and, and we'll just buy you an outfit, and you'll be good to go. We'll just dress you up a little bit more. But God is far more concerned at times than we'd prefer. And I think when we, when we think about what it is to love a Christian, what it is to, to love somebody who finds themselves in this, this is the approach that we take. It seems that we have perceived love as something overly sweet and frilly, best described as unconditional acceptance. The assumption seems to be that if I ignore how bad you are and continue to be kind, maybe, maybe just somehow something will occur to make you a nicer person. In this vein, we say that love is magic, and if the fairy dust is sprinkled long enough, change will occur. And in that case, love is looking the other way when someone steals from your home, is pretending that the vicious comment was not vicious, and it is trying to cloak the stench of sin in a more attractive scent. This is what we want. I don't really want to deal with the sin in your life. I just want to move past it. I just want to act like it doesn't matter and it's okay and everybody's going to be fine in the end. This is not loving. And it's not loving to engage a Christian like this because what it does is it allows sin to flourish. It allows sin to thrive. And so then you might be thinking, well, okay, so I get it. You're breaking my heart here. So what then does love look like? And I'm going to tell you simply, it's going to be different in each and every situation you find yourself in. As you engage with a Christian, there will be times when someone, not out of a sense of malice or a sense of foolishness or a sense of that they're just an evil, terrible person, but man, they just overlook you. They're not seeking to do harm to you, they just overlook you. And in those times and opportunities, it is an opportunity for you to engage and overlooking a transgression. You're leaving the parking lot today, and let's just take Justin, because he's probably the nicest guy I have on staff. Justin gets into his gerbil car, and he, <laughs> I think they're hamsters, right? Are they ham- what are they? Joel's pretty nice. <laughs> so check this out. I'll go there. Joel and Justin are driving... Denise's Jeep, right? And they're in the Jeep. They throw it in four high, so they just mound right over those, those, the dead man deals. 
and they cut you off in the turning lane as you get ready to pick up your grandmother. Woo! Probably because they're so nice, and that's not something they do often. They just went to the new members' breakfast and they're on a sugar high from donuts. Probably, probably is an opportunity just to overlook that. Now, if every week repeatedly they're doing that, what it is is an opportunity for you to step in and say, man, do you really think that's loving? Do you really think that's kind? Do you really think that's safe? And if you keep doing that, I'm going to talk to Denise, and she's going to take her keys back. (laughs) Allender says this. He says, I'm advocating a view of love that is consistent with doing ultimate good for the other. There are times when a hard, painful rebuke is good, and there are other times when it would crush a broken reed. There are moments when the gentle word of encouragement deepens a resolve to live for God. And there are, of course, other times when encouragement will be misheard as support for a direction that is deadly. Therefore, confrontation may be the kindest word possible. Love is the offer of a good gift that fits the circumstances, needs, and personable variables of the one being loved. Love embraces another for the great work of redemption. It captures someone by a goodness that is anything but unconditional. It is remarkably conditional in that love cannot flourish and bring forth fruit in arrogant and unrighteous soil. Do you hear that? Let me read it one more time. Love is remarkably conditional in that it cannot flourish and bring forth fruit in arrogant and unrighteous soil. Therefore, love must be an intrusion of a good gift of word or deed that makes the greatest demand of life, and this is it, follow Christ and serve him with your whole heart, soul, strength, and mind. Some time back, I was on the phone with with a friend of mine, he's another pastor, and I'm describing something to him, I'm describing an, an engagement with him. And in this moment, he's been really just kind of building me up in this conversation. I'm just, I'm there for you. I'm your friend. I'm so excited to hear this. I'm so delighted to hear that. And then there's this moment we hit the end of it, and he says, thank you for sharing that. Do you mind if I ask you just a couple of follow-up questions that would help me to understand what you've said? I'm like, I guess so. He said, all right, thanks, man. And so he begins to ask me questions that are really probing at the level of where my heart is and the things that I've shared. And he begins to ask me about my actions. He begins to ask me about my attitudes. He begins to ask me questions that are, in some sense, exposing sin in my life. And so he, he's kind of bringing all these things out. He's kind of unearthing them. And I'm just, I've kind of got this posture. Ooh, dang. Ow. And I'm thinking the whole time, I should have said no. I've actually got to go. And so he, he lays all these things out. And then he summarizes them. And it's this very kind of David-Nathan moment where he says, it breaks my heart to say these things about you. But I feel that these things are true about you. And I want them to not be. Would you let me walk with you? Would you let me care for you? And lead you out of this path? 
Because I feel like when you called me, what you might have wanted was a quick word of confirmation. But I love you enough and care for you enough to give you a word of confirmation and a stern word of rebuke. Can you hear that word of rebuke? And I was broken. I called him in some sense because what I wanted to hear from him was I was a good person, I was doing the right things, and I was moving the right action. And what I heard from him in this word was an overwhelming sense that this guy loves me far more than I ever realized he did. And my actions were far more simple than I ever recognized him seeking. And he's placed before me a choice to continue in self-assurance in a feeling of being sinless or to move forward in love, in a recognition I had sinned and needed to repent. And this is what we set before people when we engage them. So it's asking us this question, do you love the people in your life enough to come before them and love to confront them with their sin? I gotta say, I don't know that we do. It's not comfortable. It's not delightful or enjoying. It's far better to go to another fellowship. It's far better to go to another fire and feast. It's far better to go to another man camp. It's far better to suggest a book, to listen to a podcast. It's far more difficult to invest yourself in the lives of the people around you, to begin to ask questions that pull out the sin, to cooperate with the Holy Spirit in doing this work of redemption in their heart. And this is what the Lord God has called us to, and this is what he wants us to be, a people who engages. And to what lengths do we do this? Love one another and for all. Now, you're going to have different relational equity that allows you to engage in a deeper conversation with some people than others. You are not going to have the relational equity to have this level of conversation and investigation in the lives of everybody in this church. And neither will they for you. But are you willing to be present and involved and invested in your small groups, in your friendships, to get to the level where you might be known in a transparent manner where someone could come up to you and say, Ben, I know this to be true of you. I see this in your life. I don't want it to be there. Do you want it to be there? And Ben says, no, I don't want that to be there. And you say, man, I'm your friend. I love you and I care for you. I want to walk with you to root this out of your life. And he says, please join me. Are you willing to weep with your friends over their sin? Are you willing to enter into their life and let them enter into yours? And that's what he calls us to. This messy, beautiful opportunity to be a church who embodies what it is to love one another. We're reading another book right now called Creating a Culture of Care, written by uh, Dale Johnson. And Johnson really kind of king in this, uh, on this idea of uh, John 13, 35, don't know you're my disciples if you love one another. He says, churches can have a culture of all kinds of different things. And so uh, you've been to enough churches, and so you can be the young, hip church. You can be the emo church, emu church, if you want to be. You can be uh, the church that has great music. You can be the church that has insanely deep theology, and you're talking about all these uh, isms and osms that nobody knows about, and everybody pretends that they do because that makes them elitist. That's just kind of how that works, but we'll go there another time. But what we're actually called to be is a church whose culture is love. 
We're not called to be highbrow in our theology. We're not called to be either you know, reformed or hipster or whatever, and all those things manifest culturally as they respond to the people that live there in any given time. That's who or whatever. But think about this. The culture that we're supposed to have in the church, the culture that we have a biblical mandate to have in the church, is one of love. Just think about all the various ways that you have an opportunity to engage in that or to pull back from that. What has it looked like for you this week to engage in loving another person in this body? I'm not talking about your wife, I'm not talking about your husband, I'm not talking about your kids. Nobody you're related to, and for the monies, that's hard, like I get that. (laughs) If you've not been here very long, they're pretty much related to everybody, not to an ancestral level, but just to almost an unhealthy one. (laughs) But what does it look like for you to love someone? What does it look like for you to receive love for somebody else? Now, if you say that, I I can't honestly say that I've loved anyone in this body this week, well, this next week is an opportunity for you to lean into that and engage in that. And if you say, you know, I can't honestly remember a time when someone in this church loved me, then that's a failure of our body. That's a failure of our body. It's, it's possible that the reason we haven't done that is because you haven't been here and whatever else, and we can make all kinds of reasons and excuses why it's your fault, not ours. But the overwhelming experience of people that come into this church, that sit in here, that travel through, that sit in the parking lot, and whatever else, should be that they cannot come on this campus, engage with any of her members without walking away saying, I don't know what's going on, but I just feel loved. I just feel cared for. This doesn't mean, of course, that we endorse everything that anyone does, but it means that we love them enough to enter into the the difficulty of their lives and move in such a way to give them this ultimate gift of looking more, sounding more, loving more like Jesus. Amen? Now, why is this so important and why does it matter? Because that which Paul expects, Jesus inspects. Look at how Paul finishes He says the reason that we want this is so that in love, Jesus might establish your hearts blameless in holiness before our God and Father. So the whole reason he wants us increasing and abounding to having this overflow of love here in this deal is because there's coming a time when Jesus will come back. And in this picture, what Paul pictures here is Christ coming back in judgment for the church, revealing our hearts. And he says, I want your hearts desperately to be blameless in holiness before God the Father. So Jesus peels the heavens back. We are in some sense, as Paul envisions it here, before the throne. And what he wants is we've been so engaged in love for one another, for everybody we have an opportunity to come into contact with, that we are blameless in holiness. Do you see that? So Jesus comes back, and he's, Paul's really echoing this Zechariah 14 uh, 5 notion that coming back to the Lord, the heavens above filled with angels. A better translations would be all his holy ones. And so he's there, and we're in the midst of this thing. And because we have done well in loving one another and loving everyone around us, it puts us in a place under the redemption of Jesus to be blameless and holy. So what's the, what's the opposite of this? 
to the degree that you don't engage in loving the other people of this body well or wherever you call your home, wherever you identify with, and you're not engaging and moving forward to love other people well, this will not be true of you. The inspection that is awaiting for all of us will not be true of you. So we have a sense that we must move in this way. We must operate in this way. We must be a church and a people where a culture of love thrives and it is pervasive. You cannot come on this campus. You cannot experience any member of this local fellowship without experiencing the love of God. Now, that's a bold aspiration. And if you've been in any church for any sufficient length of time, you may say that is engaging in hubris. That's being overly inflated in your understanding of that which is possible. But let's, let's look at it like this. Would Jesus have told the disciples that it is necessary for them to love one another if it were not his intention that they actually do it. It is most difficult to love people who are difficult to love. That's a truism. Hey, before I close, I just want to say one more thing. And because I feel like it's important in the context of how the church abuses the idea of love. And I want to say it here at the end, because if this is true of you, then I want to be able to have a conversation with you or find somebody in this place you can have a conversation with. If you're in the middle of a relationship that you would characterize as being abusive, mentally, physically, spiritually, verbally, you feel that you are the victim of abuse. This is not a passage that tells you to go back home today. This is not a passage that tells you to stay in that abusive relationship. That is not loving to the person abusing you. And that betrays the heart of God. And it perverts the command of God to love one another. If that's you, and you'd say that you are being abused, your spouse, the person abusing you, denies it. They say, it's not true. I'm not abusing you. You're making me do this. You're making me move this way. You're making me do these things. Stay here after. I'd love to meet with you. Carolyn, our LBC on staff, would love to meet with you. We want to get you safe. We want to have you heard from that place of safety, from that place of hearing you. Then we can help you move forward and address what I would call a radical abuse of you, a perversion of God's word, and the absence of love that you've been experiencing. Man, that may not be anybody in here. But I feel like every time we've come along and we've had this conversation that we're having right now, I've had at least one or two women come up to me at the end of the service. Everybody in this room may think your life and your marriage is wonderful. But you know in your heart it's abusive. You know in your heart it's not safe. Please don't leave this place today without giving us a chance to talk to you, a chance to care for you, and a chance to help you get safe. Would you let me pray for us?
God, we recognize, I recognize as we look at this, the various ways that we fail to love one another well. All of us are guilty of not loving one another well. Many of us would rather be dressed in clean clothes, made to be covered over, instead of having to deal with our failures, with the lack of love we'd experienced. God, I just pray that you would be with us. You would confront us in your word. You would call us to righteousness and faithfulness. Father, I pray for those in this room that they have never experienced your love through the sacrifice of your son, Jesus. God, that today would be the day that they move from darkness to light. So as they're focusing on the claims of the gospel, that you love them, that you sent your son to die for them, that on the basis of their merit and the way they have lived in denial of you, that they are deserving of your wrath to be visited upon by your justice. But you have sent Jesus, your son, to die in their stead, to take upon himself the penalty and the punishment for their sin, for their misdeeds, for their misthoughts, and dying to be raised again, overcoming sin and death. So God, I pray for the lost person in this hearing, in this room, that you would have them to cry out to Jesus, Jesus, would you save me? God, would you move and stir in our hearing? Would you stir in our hearts? Would you lead us to worship you with all we've got? We ask these things in your son's name. Amen.